Welcome to Big Time Adulting, the podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Murray, and I'm here to take it deep with you on adulthood, womanhood, motherhood, and whatever other things end in hood that we can think of. It's going to be real, it's going to be honest, and we are going to laugh until a little pee comes out. If you've been looking to find a podcast to relate to as a woman and a mom, and you're kind of awesome, which you definitely are, subscribe now. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Big Time Adulting Podcast. This week I have, I think this is my most exciting podcast episode to date, for me anyway, Um, somebody who is an absolute rock star badass here today, Dr. Lucy McBride. She's a practicing internist with two decades of experience. She's a trusted and recognized voice in patient care. She's also a Bloomberg New Voices Fellow, a healthcare educator, mental health advocate, and healthcare disruptor working to increase awareness of the intersection of mental and physical health. Dr. McBride attended Princeton University, Harvard Medical School, and Johns Hopkins University as a, her residency. So, you know, she's really quite a slouch in the academic realm there. Um, Dr. McBride is a mother of three children herself, and she's based in Washington, D.C. Dr. McBride, welcome. Thank you so much for coming today. I'm thrilled to be here. It's happy, happy, and happy to be here. Yeah, so I've just, I found you via the World Wide Web on Instagram, and I've actually been following you for bits and pieces that I've seen you come out with um, throughout the pandemic. Since really early on, you've been a voice of calm and reason here. And I want to get to the kids, but I also feel like it's important to just back it up a little bit and discuss how we kind of, you know, I'm on like, I'm on the heavy trail against, not against masking, but for choice of masking children in schools. So, um, I just want to talk about how this has sort of become such an incredibly controversial topic. Like, I feel like in the first handful of months following the pandemic, you know, it wasn't an uncommon thing or at all controversial thing to say, God, I just, I can't wait to friggin' burn my mask. You know, I just, that's wearing these around all the time. And somehow along the way, I'm not sure when exactly it all sort of shifted. But if you say something like that now, there are groups of people who will, you know, look at you like you're a murderer. And vice versa, there's people out there who from the get-go have just abhorred wearing the masks and, you know, viewed it as a infringement on their personal freedoms. And it's just become so polarizing. And it seems like this medical intervention has, you know, taken on an entirely political tone, which I find to be so incredibly frustrating. So what I want to ask you is sort of, what do you make of this phenomenon? And can you talk about the actual science that we have available on masking at this point? 100%, Caitlin. Thank you so much for that kind introduction and for having me. So let's back up a little bit because before we get into the weeds of like the the sort of battleground issue of mask mandates, I think it's helpful to to talk about like, where are we now in February, 2022, two years almost of living in a pandemic, you know, managing enormous threats to our health and well-being. First and foremost, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, which is 
the virus that causes COVID-19. And secondly, all of the collateral damage from the, the virus and from the, the mitigation measures themselves. So, you know, I don't need to tell you, but we, we're experiencing enormous economic disruptions, you know, social uh, injustices, widening equity gaps. Um, yeah. You know, our, our, our collective mental health has taken a big hit, not to mention we're seeing enormous increases in substance use disorders, anxiety, depression, you know, there's a mental health crisis among teens and adolescents and children right now. So, you know, this is, this is nothing less than um, a, a parallel pandemic of a virus and, and our collective mental health in crisis. So what I, so I'm, I'm a primary care doctor. I see patients every day in my practice. I've had to cut my practice back because I'm doing all this advocacy and pro bono work yeah, but I still see patients you. every day. I'm finished up with my morning session to be here with you today. Um, and 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 what what the the way I sort of started talking more publicly about health and mental health and the inseparability of mental and physical health is that in March 2020 I started writing a newsletter to my patients just to get out information. I couldn't pick up the phone fast enough to answer all the questions like right. you know, coughing. I'm short of breath. I have a sore throat. Which test? Remember back in those hair on fire days where you couldn't even like, it was just nuts. Yeah. I started writing a newsletter. I, started, I wrote every day for 90 days and then I wrote twice a week because like by July I, I've spaced it out and then I started writing once a week and I've been writing it now for two years and it's almost reaching, it's reaching almost 20,000 people a week now with, you know, and it's free and it's just, it's like actually sort of my therapy is a way and it's also a way for me to take all of the data and facts that are coming at us, you know, a hundred miles an hour mm-hmm. and distilling it. And, you know, for me, uh, the way I learn best is that I have to teach it to somebody else. If I have to teach somebody something, then I have to learn it myself. Like I have to understand, you have to understand something really well to then teach someone else. And so for me, it's been really educational because I'm using my newsletter as a way to process a lot of information myself. I'm using my colleagues and friends from all over the country and world really to, to bounce my thoughts and ideas off because I'm in constant communication with them. And then I'm presenting it in this newsletter to deliver basically real-time fact-based information and some nuanced guidance on how to manage COVID risk and how to think about managing social isolation, anxiety, depression, and thinking about broader human issues than beyond, beyond just COVID. So here we are in February, 2022. Um, we know so much more about the virus. We know exactly who is at highest risk for the, the worst outcomes from COVID. Um, we know exactly how effective the vaccines are. And that's changed over time, right? Even mm-hmm. three months ago, the vaccines have, 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 it's not that the vaccines have changed, it's that the virus has evolved. So the vaccines aren't working as well against, against transmission and against symptomatic infection, but they continue to do amazingly against the outcomes we care most about. Right. Death, hospitalization, severe disease. Um, so we know exactly who COVID-19 affects most significantly. We know exactly um, how the vaccine works and how well it protects against the outcomes we care about. We also have extraordinary uh, testing capabilities, and we have um, increasing supply of these oral antivirals. And there's this other medication called Evusheld, which is a medication I was able to prescribe for the first time last week. It's a twice- Wow. yearly oral, uh, sorry, injection to help my immunocompromised patients, in addition to vaccination, prevent severe outcomes. So here we are. 
masks were an, an NPI, a non-pharmacological intervention that we employed in 2020 that, were, that was always meant to be a temporary measure until we got vaccines and until the virus was in better control and until we knew who was at higher risk, until we right. had oral therapeutics. And all those boxes are being checked right now. That is not to say we aren't seeing widespread death and destruction ongoing from COVID-19. It is not to say that um, that that we should let caution throw caution to the wind or let it rip. Um, it's to say that the evidence does not exist. That there's no clear evidence that masking kids in school for six to eight hours a day has a meaningful effect on transmission of the virus. It's it's been studied. Right. The studies that the CDC cites to say that masking reduces transmission are poorly confounded by that the absence of control for community vaccination rates. And when you look at data that does control for community vaccination rates, you can see that masked schools and unmasked schools have pretty much the same transmission. So I'm not saying masks can't work, that they, they can work if they're well fitted and they're N95 masks. And that's an appropriate thing to do even now in my higher risk patients. But when you have an intervention like a mask whose benefits are unproven at best in schools on children for eight hours a day in the real world and whose harms are not zero, it's really appropriate to lift the mandate and to put the, the decision of whether to mask into the hands of the parent and pediatrician. For example, my, my patient, I was just talking on another podcast about this patient of mine who has a six-year-old who's hearing impaired. Yeah. Who's vaccinated. So the child is low risk to begin with for outcomes of COVID because she's six. She's low risk even further. Her risk for severe outcomes is, is close to zero because she's vaccinated. And she's yet doing speech and language uh, therapy with a masked speech and language therapist while the kid is, is masked. And, you know, I just don't think that there should be a mandate for a mask when the pediatrician and the child want that child to be able to learn that is health too. Yeah. It seems totally bonkers at that point. Yeah. So, so I will, so I, I will, that, that's my opening thing is basically to say mental health is health. Yeah. Health is beyond just not getting COVID. We have these incredible tools. Kids are low risk. It's not to say that you shouldn't mask your child. If you want to, you can mask as much as you want. There's one way masking, which is the N95 mask. Um, it's just to say that at this watershed moment, it's appropriate to lift an intervention whose benefits are unclear at best and whose whose harms are non-zero and hard to measure, certainly, mm -hmm. but but are non-zero. And we can talk about the harms further. But, you know, I see in my I, my practice, um, I see teenagers. I also see parents, obviously, because I see adults. And I see adults whose anxiety, depression, disordered eating, substance use issues um, are rooted in adverse childhood experiences. So we know that the, the the downstream consequences of you know disruptions in kids' lives, whether it's parents getting divorced, having an illness, uh, you know, experiencing some other trauma, those childhood experiences often manifest later in life. Right. And so it's hard to measure the harms because they're not always immediate. They're not always quantifiable. There's no PCR test for. I can't read the lips of my speech therapist and I can't hear. And then, 
it, it's 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 emblematic. The, the lack of nuance uh, in the conversation about mental health is emblematic of our poor understanding in general about the meaningfulness and relevance of mental health to our whole health. Yeah. So and I'll stop talking there because I can talk. You know, no, as a talker. That was that that really like covered such a breadth of like I think what the root of the problem is, which is you know the lack of choice for especially these. Um, kids who are already marginalized in, in their yeah. capacity for learning. I mean, I had a follower DM me today saying that her daughter who has cerebral palsy has to be masked when she goes to yeah. OT stuff. And I'm like, this is just, this is beyond really um, anything logical. It's just, it's, just not, it's just nonsensical at this yeah. point. I think it's important for people to recognize a couple important points. We have abundant evidence that children transmit the virus less than adults do. It's not to say that a child can't transmit the virus more than adults do, right. but in general, kids transmit it less. Yet we have somehow labeled children as like vectors of disease or like we're, we're kind of blaming them for like these, the, 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 the flaring of the pandemic. Um, and remember that you can transmit the virus after you've had the vaccine too. So adults, adults can transmit. And, and then the other thing we need to realize is that Again, there's a log fold increase in risk that goes up with age. Yeah. And Sarah Zhang had a great article in The Atlantic this week about how just hammering home that point that you mentioned in the beginning, Caitlin, that, you know, back in 2020, I remember thinking to my husband as I had a patient in the ICU from COVID-19 who's older, thinking, this is so horrible, so tragic. I feel so helpless. Thank God children are relatively spared from the severe outcomes. Yeah. But then somehow we've like flipped the narrative and are now like hyper-focused on children when I want nothing more than to help children who become my adult patients or who are my teenage patients, but in a broader way than simply thinking about COVID, we need to think about their broad needs, their broad right. health risks. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like with kids in school and the masking and such, the, the, essentially it feels like in most places at this point, schools are the only place where masking is fully entirely mandated for those lengths of time for people. I mean, obviously in certain medical settings and stuff, that's the case as well. But in a school where we're dealing with, you know, theoretically and not theoretically, scientifically, the lowest risk yeah. population. And like, you know, I've, I mentioned this to you off offline about my son being immune compromised. And at the beginning of this pandemic was, he was still in treatment. And so he was definitely immune conference yes. at that point at a time where the pandemic was arguably scariest because it was brand spanking new and we had no information except for to go off of what you know my son's doctors had been telling us from essentially the hot spot of COVID at that point, which was New York City, in one of the most vulnerable populations of people at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, that kids who were immunocompromised were still doing okay yeah. with COVID. And I found that to be like, thank God, this is such a security blanket. Like, oh my God, this is a giant weight lifted off of my shoulders. And except I feel like from that point, it's just sort of snowballed into this um, illogical fear about yes. what could happen to the kids, or what about if there's an immune compromised kid in your well. And, and and what you what you were getting is is that was like anecdotal, really good data from your doctors at Sloan Kettering that kids who are immunocompromised weren't were, were luckily spared the worst outcomes. And that has been borne out for two years, Caitlin, in data. In fact, I could put, if you want, you can link to this 
study I can show you where uh, that I just put on Twitter um, showing that immune compromised kids are not at higher risk in general than non-immune compromised kids. Now there are exceptions, right? Like every child is different. That's why every child needs a pediatrician, right? right? Like there are, of course, it's not like you can, and, and in fact, that's what's, that's where we are right now with, that's why we're where we are with this sort of uh, vitriolic polarizing rhetoric that you referred to in the beginning is because we've messaged risk so poorly. We've, we've treated the, 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 the population as a sort of like, block of people right. when actually we have people who are in nursing homes we have children in daycare we have you know highly diverse and varied lived experiences in this country and in my opinion had the cdc which i think is well intended but has has had some problems had they messaged more nuance and and frankly had they empowered people with more sort of evidence-based, you know, clear guidance on yeah. how exactly to protect yourself and some reassurance. Like why didn't, why aren't we reassuring people? Like the Surgeon General today did this long Twitter thread about his four-year-old who has COVID. And I really respect Vivek Murthy. He's a real advocate for pediatric mental health. In fact, he put out the statement saying, this is a pediatric and adolescent mental health emergency in this country right now. Um, but his Twitter thread today is about his four-year-old who has COVID. And it's really, I mean, if you read it, and I'd be interested in your thoughts and the, the people who are listening, it it's it he, he could have used it as an opportunity to re- reassure people because the kid has a cold. Right. The kid has a cold. Um, the kid's not vaccinated because the child is four. Yeah. But instead of reassuring people, um, it, it at least the way it's, if you look at the comments, it's, it's people are very, very alarmed. And so it, it's a, just a missed opportunity to say like, hey, my kid has, you know, has vaccinated parents, which, which does help with this cocooning effect when you surround the unvaccinated child by a vaccinated parent or guardian yeah. or siblings, and my kid is going to be fine. Um, but unfortunately, that message has been, and I think what's happened is that with good intentions, I think that if you message reassurance, it is somehow confused as an anti-vax statement or like yes, don't right. get vaccinated when Lord have mercy. Like to, I mean, I've been called anti-vax, anti-mask, right-wing operative, you know, someone funded by dirty money. I mean, I don't even know what that means to be honest. Like I've watched a lot of like cops <laughs> and robbers movies, but I'm like, I am just like a doctor and a mom trying to get through the day, like dyeing my hair with like CBS hair dye to like go on TV. <laughs> Just trying to give a little bit of common sense through through the through the I'm trying to cut through the political rhetoric, cut through right. the right. the union driven, you know, messaging that has nothing to do, in my opinion, with children. Um, so I think what's happened is that in an attempt to be very pro-vax, you know, public health institutions have like been very uh, sort of fear-based in their messaging to make sure people get vaccinated when actually it's so much more nuanced than any of that. Yeah. And I would say even quite demonizing of um, oh, you know, yeah. being vaccinated. I wanted to ask you about that too. Just like, I know where you stand on masking mandates. What are you, where are, I, I'm a, like, now I feel like everybody has to friggin' disclaim where they stand on everything, but which I don't agree with doing. And I don't even want to say this, but now I'm halfway through the sentence. So I'm going to, but I am, you know, pro-vax, I'm vaccinated. And yeah. um, my two 
older kids have received their um, vaccines as well. My two-year-old can't, but I, I feel as though I come from a, um, you know, a nuanced standpoint that is not generally recognized. Like people, exactly what you were saying, consider me to be some complete anti-mask, anti-vax, you know, crazy, um, conservative, whatever. But it does. And I don't, I honestly, I don't give a shit about people's politics. I just give a shit about my kids. So, but what I wanted to ask you, because a lot of people are, um, and I, I completely understand why people are hesitant with vaccination surrounding children and, and that kind of thing, or maybe, you know, question whether it's at all necessary at this point, given that we know how, um, well, you know, almost all So I think it really comes down to the science and the data. You know, I believe in the vaccines. The COVID vaccine, though, is different than, for example, the 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 MMR shots. Right. Like, and it's different now than it was three months ago. So if you if you if you really put science in the front seat of your thinking and the data, um, it's 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 difficult to come down on a vaccine mandate for children at this moment. Now I may change my mind, but 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 I, I so I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. My kids are vaccinated. My husband's vaccinated, even though he already had COVID. We are pro-vax. It's it's it is possible and it is common to be pro pro COVID vaccine and anti-mandate. I'm not even anti-mandate of the vaccine. I'm just I'm just watching what's happening and seeing that a um, the vaccines don't prevent transmission. Right. So when you have a vaccine that doesn't prevent transmission, it makes it harder to argue for it to be mandated because yeah. it's no longer a public health tool like it was pre Omicron. Yeah. So this is why it's very. This is why it's it's tricky, and, and you really have to be watching this stuff every day, as I do obsessively. I am like finger yeah. on the pulse of the data, alongside my epidemiology, public health, infectious disease, virology colleagues. I don't claim to like know everything. I, I'm like in constant dialogue, but my point is that, you know, unlike the measles vaccine or the mumps or the you know the MMR, which like prevents the disease in the child and prevents transmission, like. That that's that's like a that's like a no brainer, right? It's just that the COVID vaccine doesn't prevent transmission anymore, right? And so it makes it a harder to argue to 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 to, to mandate it. Um, at the same time, do I believe the vaccines work at preventing severe outcomes in higher risk people? Absolutely, and I recommend vaccines all day long. I mean, yeah. I am so frustrated at some of my patients. I try not to show frustration. I I really come at it with empathy and understanding, but I have a number of patients who are adults who have some of them high, um, you know, have some risk factors who refuse to get vaccinated. And that is hard for me because I, I really worry about them. I really worry about them having a poor outcome should they get infected and they will be exposed. Right. Everyone's Um, getting it. But I'm not demonizing them. I'm not threatening them. I'm not, I just, I just, I just want to try to understand, but we also have other stuff to do. We've got to work on their heart failure, their diabetes, their, you know, other things. We, it's just one thread and it's their choice. And yeah. and who am I to judge? I think we need to stop judging people and yes. far, start listening a little more and, and then not have to, not have to be so binary on these decisions yeah. um, and understand that COVID vaccines are different from other vaccines at the Omicron moment. 
Right. Yeah. Especially now. Totally. Yeah. It was different. I might've said mandate back in, you know, I never really, it never even came down on the side of mandates because it wasn't, it wasn't really a question that was asked of me. Uh, I just do it person by person and all my patients really want to get vaccinated except these kind of holdouts. Um, but it, it's, it was different in the, in the alpha or sort of ancestral strain when, when we thought it did reduce transmission and it just doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also, well, I mean, I was just going to say when I, I've poured over this decision for my children um, about like the vaccines a bit, and I have, you know, asked my most trusted doctors more on more than one occasion about the vaccines. And the one thing like the overarching statement that I found comforting was that regardless of, you know, whether or not they're working at preventing transmission or whatever is that they're safe. Right. So that that's, that was really the thing. It was like, you don't have to worry that they're not safe, but I mean, there's. Well, it depends on the age cohort. I mean, yeah, I would say they are extraordinarily safe. Like the five to eleven year old data, I mean, so incredibly safe. So you might say to someone who is having a conversation like this, like someone to like you and me, why all the fuss? It's so safe. Just get vaccinated. Fine, get vaccinated because it's so safe. And I, if I had a five to eleven year old, I I would probably vaccinate them because I would want them first of all not to be struggle with the quarantining shenanigans that happens if yeah. you're not vaccinated. Yeah. But assuming those policies are going to be lifted because it's not going to make sense anymore, um, then then it's. But but separately, I, I would I would vaccinate my child. My me personally, I'm not right. telling you what you should do, but I personally would would do either one or two doses. And if they had COVID. I wouldn't necessarily think they needed it. I'd maybe give them one dose for the, for the teenagers. It's a little different. There's this rare, very rare, but real risk of vaccine induced myocarditis that happens more with a Moderna shot. It happens more when the two second for the second dose, when it's spaced three weeks from the first dose. Um, And more with boys, right? And it's with teenage and young boys. It's really, really, really rare. Mm -hmm. But our job in medicine is to do no harm. Right. So if you have a vaccine that, you know, you can give one dose and space out the doses, the two doses further to reduce an already low risk to really low and reduce the very rare but real risk of, of myocarditis, that's what I would do. And by the way, I was advocating way back before it was cool to do so, spacing out the two doses of the vaccine for teenage and young boys. And I was called anti-vax and you're going against the CDC and FDA and you're a horrible person. Well, now the CDC and the FDA are saying the same thing. So I'm not saying like, I, I have no interest in saying like, I told you so. I'm just saying like, science is, an, science is an iterative process and we have to have room for conversations yeah. that are not binary. It's yeah. just nothing in, life is, nothing in life is binary. I mean, maybe the light going on and off in my office is binary, on, off, on, off, but everything else is, is on the dimmer switch. Yeah. I, I And so like, this is, and I have another question for you that it's not as much maybe medical, but maybe you have some insight as to the direction we might be heading that uh, could ease minds of people. I just feel like in certain states, like here in New York, mask mandates have been dropped and reinstated again for businesses and adults, but kids have been you know, forced to mask all along, even when adults could go without them. And so do you think that like once the mandates have been dropped in schools, which seems imminent, I don't know. It's, I don't know. Waiting on, it could, it could not. Well, and, and remember it's only in, it, it's remember that half the country 
like we're only talking about the, the, the highest vax states are the ones that are the strictest with the schools. Right. So, and it goes on political lines. It's not a coincidence, right? Correct. So a lot of schools are maskless already. Yes, right, exactly. So there's like, and so which is infuriating, I think, to a parent like myself who would like the choice, who lives in a very blue state. Well, it just shows that it's political and not medical, right? If you have the red states unmasked in schools and the blue states masked in schools in general, like, you know, the virus really doesn't vote or have any, like, it, it shows that it's political and not medical, which is why you and I have this conversation to try to cut through that. Yeah, and like the anxieties, like surrounding that, like you said, with, you know, the threat of always having a quarantine or, and that's like a reason why people do vaccinate their kids. Like, Oh, I just can't deal with that. Like I have to go to work or whatever. And then even just um, this state of fluctuation that we're in where we just never know what's going to happen. And we're sort of being, you know, dangled a little like puppets. Like I, I feel like it's created this atmosphere of mistrust in both, you know, our leaders and the CDC um, in such that I can't wrap my head around why this is happening. Is there, it's like, it's, there's either one, an ulterior motive or two, they actually have no idea what they're doing. And for me, at least in both of those scenarios, it leads to a deep sense of mistrust. Like I hear you loud and clear. I mean, I, I worry so much about the erosion of trust in public health institutions, because we need public health institutions. We need leadership to guide us and give us, but give us, you know, guidance and, and trust it. And we, that we can trust to have the facts. So as you can see, you know, half the country has already moved on. Governors in blue states are, are flipping the mask mandates in, 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 in indoors, but not yet for schools in most places. Um, Which makes no sense. Like if this is it makes no sense. I mean, it's it's all political, and I'm not here to be political in my life as a doctor. I'm just saying that you have to point out the politics of it to make it so clear that it's not about the science or the data. And you know, I I wish I knew the answer, Caitlin. Like I would, I spend a lot of time thinking through these issues of like the why, Mm -hmm. because you know, doctors, you know, this is a medical crisis. It's a medical crisis of a virus. It's a mental health crisis, which is another medical health crisis. Mm-hmm. And doctors who are not tied to politics, who are not being funded, who are citizen scientists, like, for example, our Urgency of Normal Toolkit doctors, who are just, you know, a bunch of parents who got together to try to put the data together and yeah. hand it to policymakers. Like, if, if, if that is not, if that is thought to be, like, it's just, it just bizarre to me that that is considered to be an agenda when we're watching political agendas play out. I just, it's very disheartening. And I, I, I never lose hope that truth will prevail and that, and that people will see what is right. And ultimately I think parents are seeing the kind of cognitive dissonance. I mean, look at the Super Bowl and then look at how, you know, the Super Bowl happened and then yes, it was outside and yes, those people are vaccinated. And yes, but, but it doesn't, that's not the point. The point is that it's the, it's the comparison of the Super Bowl to then the next day, a disabled, vaccinated six-year-old is masked for eight hours with his or her speech-language therapist. So, you know, parents are starting to get really upset, and I think rightly so. Um, and it's not because parents are unhinged or unreasonable. It's because parents know. They, they can see. They can, they can smell some agenda that's not about their kid. Yeah. 
it's not about their kid. And it, it just, it honestly breaks my heart. And I don't know, it's been a really interesting time for me personally. Um, it's been really, 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 really challenging, but really, really, really meaningful. And it's been great in a way just to, for my kids to see this happening. And for me to, to talk about how hard it is to advocate for the truth. It's on, you know, I know I have biases, like I'm a person, I have biases. I don't know what I don't know, but I try to check them with people who disagree with me. I'm on the phone with people who disagree with me. Yeah. Um, quite often, I actually pick up the phone, talk to some, I, anyway, and to, to, to tell my kids, you know, it's hard to go against the popular narrative, but I know in my heart what I know, and I feel like there are so many people without a voice, and if I can help people without a voice have a voice, then it's worth it. Yeah. And if people want to call me X, Y, Z, ABC, I can take it because I have the data and I have yeah. the facts and I have my, I have my good intent and that's all I have. Yeah. And you're, and I, I just, so, I mean, I think I started like on the hunt for information, like you've been putting out there um, and looking for doctors voices on this stuff for about, you know, a year now, I would say. And it's just such a relief and you feel so validated because, you know, I'm a big fan of your urgency for normal toolkit, all of that. And I've, I've posted about it on my Instagram page. Um, just putting out the data in simple facts for people yeah. to see. But like uh, the, another question I wanted to ask you is like, I guess, um, and because of, because of that type of data and what you guys have put together, which is just a phenomenal conglomerate of doctors that you have. Thank you. And, and, and again, I had to point out, it's a conglomerate. It's a, it's a, it's a group. Like I rely on, you know, I am only as strong as my team, whether it's with my practice like my awesome badass nigerian american assistant and my consulting doctors that i refer people to like the therapists i work with like i do medication management for a patient's depression and they do the therapy and we tag team i'm only as strong as my team in this urgency of normal group it's the pediatric adolescent psychiatrists who work inside the inner city schools in baltimore yeah. and so it's 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 a group it's a team it is a it's a joint effort so we have different points of view and by the way our toolkit represents doctors, you know, PhDs, scientists, all across the political spectrum. We are not, you know, we are diverse in many, many ways, which is cool. But anyway, so I'm just saying thank you for the compliment, but it also is important that you diversify your sources and where you get information because it's hard to find out who you realize who you trust and hard to hard to know who to trust. And I think it's good to have lots of points of view and 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 you know. Yeah, so do what would you say to like these there cuz I I know there are parents who are, um, and even parents of ch contemporaries of mine who are doctors who have children wearing masks, you know, outdoors all the time and everything. And, um, yeah, I don't know I, what that's about. I, yeah, I don't know what that's about either. And I, I just, I wonder if it's just this like, um, you know, ingrained fear that's been placed in a lot of people over the last couple of years, which is understandable because it's been a scary time or maybe they've seen the worst of the worst or whatever, but how do you, I mean, like, I think it's important that we come to a place of understanding for each other and in order to you know hopefully have people feel like they can let go of this you know mask the mask move you're on. you're such a good you're really really good interview i have to tell you because i've done a lot of interviews and you really get at really important questions the, the masking outside one is such an interesting one because it would be very easy for me to say for example gosh 
what a what a sad person that is that they match their child outside and to judge right I'm not judging. I'm just curious. And I think I think one of the because, as you know, the risk of outdoor transmission of, of, of the virus is like almost zero. Right. The risk of a child transmitting it is, is, is low. The risk of a vaccinated child transmitting it outside. I mean, it's just it's like it would be like a meteor landing in your backyard and like lighting the whole place on fire. You know, it just yeah. doesn't happen. So it doesn't make sense to mask outside from a medical standpoint. So what does it mean? I think this is my impression. And you tell me what you think. And you can ask your listeners. You know, unfortunately, we've really we've moralized the pandemic so much. We've we've attached morality to masking. We've attached morality to you know boosting. It's sort of like you know we at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like and you we're, in this, we're in this together. You know, you know, flatten the curve. We're all in together, and and we should all be in it together. But unfortunately, that got taken as a message of like, I if I do more, the more I isolate, mask boost myself the the like like the, the that I'm a better person that I care about people more than you do right. and actually we shouldn't shame people for 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 going to work for essential workers couldn't lock down they couldn't be scrupulous like the laptop class of people in the early parts of the pandemic so i think the moralization of caution the moralization of safety against the virus is really really dangerous and is part of what is dividing us right now i really do yeah, and I, I think people are just having a really hard time looking at it through a lens of, you know, reason and without those biases like you were talking about. It's just, and it's hard to drop it because um, of the political climate, I think we were coming off of into the pandemic and now, um, and we're just at a time of such severe division, yeah. um, which I find to be really sad. And I don't, I hate it. I, I really would like to be, you know, a voice to people who are having a hard time letting go or or who are anxious about the pandemic still to say, I get it. I've been really anxious about this pandemic at certain times as well, but I've been also really committed to following the science and the the data, especially around kids, because I want my kids to have a normal life back. And that is not something to be ashamed of wanting to have a normal life and wanting to have joy, pleasure, social time that sh we should not have to apologize for that. No. That, doesn't, that does not mean I care less about my neighbors and friends. I care less about the virus. Um, in fact, the people who sequestered themselves the, 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 the hardest in, in, in the, in 2020 were the, the more privileged set among us. Right? right. Like, so it's just this backwards argument that, you know, safetyism is virtue when safetyism often means the exclusion of other, you know, broader, you know, a broader look at what it means to be healthy, which includes connecting with other people. It includes playdates for your kids. Yeah. You know, my, my son who's been vaccinated and boosted and had COVID in college is forbidden from having any social interaction and they're forbidden from going into the town in the small little college town he's in. So sad. As if going to get pizza on a Friday night with a friend when you've been vaccinated, boosted, and had COVID, so he's had four encounters with the antigen, is emblematic of, is emblematic of him being like a bad person. And that does, it does, you know, he's okay, but it does great. You know, it does great on your cognitive, <laughs> your, like, it's just, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, 
And these kids are supposed to be socializing and not locked down in perpetuity. And there's really no plan for them to, to loosen up mitigation measures. So, you know, it's been a really, it's been a real education for him. It's been, you know, as you will see, uh, as your kids get older, I mean, it's just the, the joy of like seeing them become who they are is so amazing and seeing them navigate hard times is which your son has done um, with his, with his um, cancer treatment. Um, but I think that, 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 that is where, that is the birthplace of insight. It's the birthplace of empathy for other people. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've really, you know, there are no silver, there, there are very few silver linings to a global pandemic, but I think, you know, we do learn from these kind of traumas and we learn that divisiveness and, and labeling people and judging people, um, is really not the path forward and only makes people feel worse. Yeah, I, it feels like we've been on a real pendulum swing from the beginning of this, where I think we did have a lot of that camaraderie and um, come togetherness, and like you mentioned, and um, and now it just feels very much the other way. And I, I really hope that we can get back. And I, you know, I'm curious also because of the fear that's that's in so many people still, um, particularly in states where our mitigation strategies are still so stringent. Um, which, you know, is crazy. Like you mentioned also because our vaccination rates are so high. I think like the town I live in is 94% vaccinated and, you know, we, our, our kids are fully masked all the time and they were masked outdoors at the beginning of the year and all that crap. But, um, like, I guess I just wonder if there is a phenomenon or something, a trend, I guess, with doctors that they feel as though they've been silenced by their employers to stick to one unified message throughout the pandemic. Um, Because I know I've received like messages from some doctors who do feel that way. um, And I just... You know, I wish I could show you my private messages on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, my emails and my texts from my friends and colleagues from my training and from just all over the, the country who say, thank you for saying what I'm thinking, but I can't say it because of my employer, because of the AAP. Um, I am lucky because I am in private practice and I, my only bosses are my patients. Yeah. Um, and uh, like my patients are free to disagree with me. And I, and lots of people do disagree with me. Um, not my patients really on my medical advice, um, but in terms of this, this advocacy work, um, because, you know, I think, I think, I think some doctors also are uncomfortable doing advocacy work because they think they should just be telling people facts and then, and then having people make their own decision. And, and that is of course, part of my job is like, here are the facts, here is your diagnosis, whether it's COVID or something else, right? Like here you have, you know, heart disease. Here's my understanding uh, uh, based on my training and knowledge of, you know, congestive heart failure. Let me tell you the physiology. Let me tell you the the clinical, the clinical course. Let me tell you what the medications are like. Let me tell you about the side effects. Let's talk about the various options of what you should do and what you, and the data on, you know, various treatment courses and, and options. And then, you know, we decide on a treatment path in consultation with a cardiologist if needed, of course. Um, but ultimately my job is to be an advocate for the patient and, and give a recommendation. Yeah. You know, I don't just say, here's the, it's, I'm not like a, the cheesecake factory where I give like all the different choices of cheesecake <laughs> and you choose. Now, I'm like, okay, I did do some training and I have 20 years of experience. So like, let me tell you what I think you should do. Given what I know about you, I've known you for 15 years, you know, you have depression, this yeah. heart medicine can exacerbate depression. So let's be a little thoughtful about it. 
so, but this is just the same thing. It's advocacy work. It's where I know the data. I'm looking at the data. I know what I know. And I, I hopefully know more what I don't know. And I'm, I'm advocating. I think a lot of doctors are not comfortable with advocacy. They're not comfortable being public with things like this. Yeah. And that's fine. Doctors are notoriously also very risk averse. Yes. I mean, we're like, we're like, you know, we're like an anal retentive crowd, right? It's like when I was in Harvard Medical School, the one, the, one of the first lectures or like when they were like welcoming the first year uh, students, they said, okay, raise your hand if you're a firstborn. And literally the whole room, it wasn't probably not everybody, but it was like 90%, you know, like firstborn type A, yeah. risk averse, you know, like these are not people who are like dancing on tables. Followers. Right. So yeah. like, so, so there's the sort of personality type, which again, like I'm a rule follower, believe me. I do not like, uh, like, I do not like, getting in trouble. Like <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't really drink until I was 21. You know what I mean? Like I maybe in college a little bit, but you know, like, <laughs> but I think the point is that doctors are notoriously risk averse. It's a very heated time. Yeah. You see what happens to people who are like me, who are like pretty reasonable and rational and listening and empathetic who are getting like, you know, crucified by haters, mostly getting lots of amazing feedback. And right. that's great. Um, it, so there's a there's a high risk personally professionally to putting yourself out there mm-hmm. when it's against the popular narrative and that is the landscape of what we live in we live in a world with you know cancel culture some people should be canceled if they're overtly racist or harming people uh, we also need to be able to make space for civil discourse about um, complicated topics and and topics that um, that are that and, and issues that are evolving right like this right. is an evolving process and science and so so to answer your question i think it's hard to speak out right now but one of the things i found like my husband and i have talked about this a lot throughout like with the pandemic and and doctors and the messaging and such is that what we found so often while we were going through the treatments with my son is that doctors were, were also like you said risk averse and hesitant to say anything definitively because you know things can change everything is but this has been so interesting because it's been one message this is the plan this is what we're doing this is what works no room for nuance and and that seems to be so you know odd like it make it makes you know the little hairs stand up like well no one wants to get no one want, you know we no one wants to be wrong yeah no one wants to be wrong no one wants to, like in this culture we live in in the public square if you if you're wrong and if you're repeatedly wrong you know you're like it, it, there's some can be some pretty mean like the mob can go after you mm-hmm. um but there's also needs to be a place for, you know, wagering an opinion and risking in, in, with good intent, um, making a, an, an opinion or, 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 or a point that is, that is using your clinical judgment, your experience and the data to make, to posit uh, an opinion. Um, and there needs to be forgiveness and redemption of people who aren't perfect all the time. And that's part of what we're dealing with is that the absence of, you know, forgiveness of people who are just human. And I think it's just hard to be human in this day and age. You know, if it's hard for kids, if it's hard for adults and adults can be so mean on social media, I can only imagine what our kids see, right? Like I constantly talk to my kids. I mean, probably to their, they just like, are like, mom, come on. Like you've got this conversation with me a hundred times, you know, the bullying is just, if it happens among adults, like 
poor kiddos what they're seeing, you know, yeah. not to mention during the pandemic when they're online and kids are unhinged, so many of them. And so totally. I just think we need to make kindness great again, make empathy great again, yeah. make listening uh, part of the deal, less shouting, more listening, more compassion. Try to try to see when you are making a strong point of view point, like I try to do this myself. If I have a really passionate opinion about something, I try to take the opposing view in my mind, Please or even I write it down, I'm going to argue it back. Mm -hmm. Because if I can't argue it back against myself, then I really shouldn't be making that opinion or, or be passionate about it. Like, or I should really rethink what the hell am I thinking anyway? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, you have to think, you know, objectively from both sides in order yeah. to really speak with conviction, conviction on things, I think. But I just, I want to thank you. I want to applaud you for taking a big swing throughout the pandemic and for being a voice of reason and be in sticking with like your instincts, not just your instincts, but following the real data and interpreting it for people in a way that can help them take a deep breath and um, get to a place of calm and, and understanding and progress um, mentally, physically, everything. So There's a lot to thank you for thanking me, but I, I just thank you for, for, for being someone also yourself who's willing to talk about, uh, you know, middle ground and the issues and not, uh, you know, what's right or wrong. Um, and again, I, I think there's so much that we've learned and there's so much good. There's obviously so much trauma and tragedy happening, but human beings can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can be sad and work hard to protect the vulnerable in our populations and in our families mm -hmm. and live our lives. Yeah. We can do both. We are not one trick ponies. Yeah, it's essential to do both, really, isn't it? For yes, yes. All can, I, I will continue to see my patients and protect my high-risk patients from COVID. I will continue to work with my teenagers on their depression and anxiety, and we can do both. Yes. They're not mutually exclusive. Yes. And so I'm going to, um, I'm going to let everyone know that they can, um, where they can find you on social media. It's at Dr. Lucy McBride. And I'm going to post that in my show notes as well as, um, where to find the urgency of normal toolkit, yeah. or a website and your website. Um, but really I, I just want to, say thank you once again oh for so nice. being here today and for honestly this is a validating wonderful conversation and i hope a lot of people are able to listen to it and you know come to a place of middle if they're feeling extreme um I yeah and, and some some deep breaths yeah and um yeah progress and hope hope is alive all right. Thanks, Caitlin. I appreciate you being here, being here with me. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you're looking for any of the resources from the episode, you can check them out in show notes. Again, if you liked listening, I'd love it for you to subscribe. Until next time, peace out.